David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Tonight I'm going to go a little bit, and I warned the rabbi of this, I'm going to go a little bit political. Uh, some things are going to sound very relevant. And so I'm hoping not to offend anybody, but there's a lot of political correctness around and I need to make sure that we contextualise history. And I'm only speaking about history. Any parallels between that and our current generation are purely coincidental. But if there's one thing that has always, without exception, spelt disaster for the Jewish people, it is a philosophy of nationalism. We do not do nationalism well. Now you might be sitting there going, ah, but you know, but you know, State of Israel, Zionism, Nationalist Project. And I'll say it again. We have never done nationalism well. It has always led to disaster. I'm going to talk about this, I'm going to touch upon this, because you cannot understand the period we're talking about unless you understand that problem. Now some of you might also turn up, look, I'm not living in a vacuum. I'm aware. I'm aware. All historians and students of Jewish history are aware that the Holocaust is a game changer. And we are living in a different kind of reality. And I'm aware of that. But you know, two or three years ago, I was asked by some, uh, some people who were fairly close to the Satma Rebbe in Williamsburg. There, there are two Satma Rebbes at the moment, at least two. One of them is in Williamsburg. And they were interested to know whether I would be interested in translating, because that's what I do with most of my day. I, I sit down and I translate. Well, I'd be interested in translating Vayoel Moshe. With, no, I'm not kidding. Which is a book by the Rav Yoel Teitelbaum, the great Satma Rebbe. And it is the most virulent, most virulent anti-Zionist text you could possibly imagine. Now, I happen to personally believe that the fundamental argument of the Satma Rav was wrong. And for the reason that I said earlier, I believe that the Shoah changed many things about the way we see ourselves in the world and whether it was set up by the right people or not the right people the state of Israel was, is and will continue to be a necessity. The Holocaust proved one thing it is that we are not safe anywhere except in our own land defended by our own army. But it's still a problem what was the Satmarov's basic argument? Apart from the fact that, well, his basic argument was, as you famously know, and I'm not, this is unfortunately not a lecture on Satmar theology. That would be interesting. This is going to be interesting, but that would be cool. Now we'll give that another time. Imagine three-part series in Satmar theology at Corfield Shul. 
But what the Satmar of, apart from the fact that the state of Israel was set up by non-Frumiyidin, that non-religious Jews had set this up, so it wasn't a Torah state, he looked very carefully at a very, very famous Gemara in Masechet Ketubot. And this Gemara explains, it's a piece of Agadatah, but it's very, very profound, and it works on a verse of Shira Shirim. You can look at it, it's in Masechet Ketubot, 111a. And the Gemara says that there were certain oaths that were taken by the Jewish people and the nations. It's kind of contractual oaths. And two of these oaths befell the Jewish people. One of them was that they would not rebel against the nations. Okay, that's one of them. And another one, which is difficult for us to necessarily pin down what it means and how it's different from the first, is that we would not be la'alot bachoma, that we would not rise up. And there's two versions of this Gemara. One says kachoma, one says bachoma, that we would not come up as a wall, or like a wall, or possibly even against the wall. In other words, we would not, united, attempt to rise up and retake the land of Israel before the time of the full redemption. And the third promise was on the nations, that they would not overly persecute the Jews. And this Gemara would have been written after a time when we had already suffered a lot. So what over-persecution is, it's for us to speculate, but nothing comes anywhere near the Shoah. Nothing comes anywhere near what the last two, you know, 1500 years after that Gemara was written. Now, why am I talking about these issues at the start? It's because we're going to look at a hundred years tonight. And it's a hundred years in which both of those things, rebellion and la'alot bachoma, happened. And they both spelt absolute disaster for the Jewish people. This course, which is looking at how Chazal came to be who they were and have the influence they have and create the fundamental institutions that we call the Jewish world, how they related to the great geopolitical movements and emperors around them. And so our timeline tonight, whereas if you recall from last week, I got up to that famous visit of the four great sages from Israel who went to visit the emperor Domitian and ended up having the encounter with Nerva, and that is around 96, 95, 96. So it's more or less took us up to the end of that century. Uh, so I'm going to go basically from 100. Yeah, let's call it 200. Because there's a bit after this, but we'll deal with that. And like I said last week, you know, in the short amount of time that we have, I can't cover absolutely everything. But what I want to look at are the primary developments and the primary principles and the primary people involved who are really moving the story along. It's like when they had to reduce, you know, George R. R. Martin's books ice and fire to Game of Thrones. I mean, they put in a lot, but they can't put everything in. So in this talk, we'll just have to talk about the main episodes so that we can get the thematics coming out of them. And you will see just how relative they are to us. So, Anirva, who was kind of a shtickle, um, I mean, I'll... you see, this is, this is the problem. I really, really want to shock you a little bit. Because we can sit back and go, ah, oh, let's learn some history. 
And you really need to understand the cycles that work in Jewish history. There are periods during when I'm going to talk about tonight, there are periods in this century, and this right at the beginning is one of them, where we thought that the worst was behind us. That things were okay now. We had a horrible emperor, but now actually Judaism is being looked on a bit more favorably. Our political and social aspirations are being heard in the Roman capital. Emperors and world leaders are more favorably disposed to us now. It was an illusion. It was an illusion. It was an illusion then and it is an illusion now. Nerva only lasted on the throne for a couple of years. He died. And then, who succeeded him? Trajan. And Trajan, as you recall, Nerva was a kind of a, you know, he was already old, but he, uh, he didn't have the same kind of relationship with the army. Trajan was a soldier who was very interested in the army and went on lots of campaigns with them. To understand Trajan is to understand an emperor that wanted, I mean obviously you can imagine that a thousand books have been written on Trajan and huge studies of his, of his time and his uh, conquests and so on, but he was, Trajan in essence was an expander. He wanted the Roman Empire to be large and well protected. In fact, Trajan was the greatest expander and conqueror that the Roman Empire ever had. By the time Trajan, you all know what this is. There's North Africa. And may I remind us, may I remind us of what I pointed out last week, and it's still very, very much the case that this world is comprised of two massive domains. One of which is the Roman Empire and one of which I should have done the Roman one in red and the Parthian in purple and one of which is the Parthian Empire East and West. Trajan expanded the Roman Empire over the course of the next 20 years or so. He's on the throne for about 20 years till the year 117. And during the course of that time, he expands enormously, even incurring into the Parthian Empire. This was a very big deal. And Trajan captured parts of the Parthian Empire and created new Roman provinces called Mesopotamia, Roman Mesopotamia. In fact, Trajan not only took what is today kind of northern Iraq, he went as far as Iran, as far as western Iran. He took the town of Shusha and so on. So he had a Roman Empire that went deep into the Parthian Empire. And that's what you've got to understand about Trajan. Trajan spent most of his time fighting battles and agitating for conquests. 
Now, before I talk about the effect of that on Jewish communities, because that affected Jewish communities deeply, why would it affect Jewish communities deeply? What some emperor's foreign policy is, is because, and it's very important to understand this, is that as I explained last week, there are Jewish communities right throughout the Roman Empire and there are Jewish communities right throughout the Parthian Empire whose safety and security and existence is dependent on their loyalty to the empire in which they live. You can't be a Jewish community in the Roman Empire going, yay the Parthians. And you can't be a Jewish community in Babylonia or anywhere else in the Parthian Empire going, yay the Romans. So Jews are having to support the Parthians against the Roman incursions. And that was difficult. That was difficult. Rome had Judea. Rome had the massive Jewish communities of Alexandria, of Rome itself, of right across North Africa and expanding out towards Europe. And these are very, very conflicting positions in the Jewish world. And yet there was a general sense, and we know this from the documents that we read, there was a general sense that in the Jewish world overall, if you had to take a vote, you would probably want to be living in the Parthian Empire because the Roman Empire was becoming a little awkward in some ways. Things were not a bed of roses in Parthia. But the Parthians didn't really know at this stage from the kind of classical anti-Semitism that Roman culture was beginning to develop. But before we talk about the impact of that, I just want to mention one extraordinary individual who is going to come back into the picture. And I'm talking about him now because he's really flourishing around this time, which is the post-Nervan. And remember that Nerva had really, really laxed the rules of Fiscus Judaicus and he'd shown a great friendliness towards the Jews. Trajan at the beginning didn't really think much about Jews. He was happy to let things run. That was going to change. And he was only concerned about who was going to support him and not support him in the various conquests he was making. And he doesn't really have any firm opinions on Jews at the very earliest stages. And during that period, quite a number of people in high positions are finding their way to Judaism and to the Jewish world in this new wave of benign relations. Some of those people were related to nobility. And a couple of them were totally extraordinary. And obviously, I'm talking about, well, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The figure I'm about to talk about for one minute now and then another minute later in the, in the talk, because we have a lot to get through, is a very, very unfocused figure historically. We're not entirely sure who he was, but the composite of who he probably was, amongst a variety of possible people and texts, we know collectively, under the single brand name of Onculus. 
Onkelos, when I say the word Onkelos, most of you are going, ah, oh, Onkelos, the great, great translator of the Torah into Aramaic, published, printed with every published edition of the Chumash, so sacred a translation that the rabbis even mandated that you go over it every week with the Parsha of the week. You've got to go through the Targum in Onkelos as well. Became the, the keystone of rabbinic commentary and understanding of what the words actually mean. And it's not just a translation, it's a deeply embedded commentary inside the translation as well. Everybody agrees that that's Onkelos. But there are two possible candidates for who Onkelos actually was. And there may have been, over the following centuries, some confusion as those two projects merge. Because we also have another famous convert called Aquila, or Aquila. Aquila of Sinope, who went on to become a student of Rabbi Akiva, also a famous convert, who translated the Bible into Greek. Now, the Greek Septuagint had already existed for a long time, for around three centuries by now, but the Jews didn't really like it, and also the Christians were slobbering all over it. And so, Aquila wrote a translation of it into Greek, that the rabbis said, okay, if you have to have a Greek translation, use that one. It's possible that the Aramaic Targum that we know as Onkelos is actually considerably older and was already in existence by that time. What we also know is that a man called Titus Flavius Clemens, who was a nephew of Vespasian, because remember the famous rabbinic midrash about Onkelos is that he was a nephew of an emperor, and there are different discussions. Was he a nephew of Vespasian? Was he a nephew of Titus? Was he a nephew of Hadrian? Who was he a nephew of? Those come together, and Titus Flavius Clemens is a reasonable candidate for the source of the legend, which is true, that the emperor's nephew converted to Judaism. But I'm just pointing that out, because when historians look at it, it's very, very fuzzy, but during this time, there is a tremendous resurgence, not just, not just in our profile generally, such that now it's kind of cool to convert to Judaism again, as it had been a hundred years ago. But that back in the land of Israel, in the intellectual center of where things are happening, Yavna and its project is really booming. And who is kind of making it happen in Yavna? Who's, who are the big figures that we're looking at that we mentioned last week? They are the ones who are developing the dynamic interpretations of the Oral Torah and systematizing at the same time. Rabban Gamliel II, who is the grandson of the first Rabban Gamliel, who was the grandson of Hillel, he is now the Nasi with kind of a princely title and princely honours. It's almost like he is in locus of royalty, but there are some other very, very big authorities. This, this structure is going to change over the course of the next hundred years, 
but it's really a patrician class that is running Yavna. But even those who had been around for a while were able to rise through the ranks because as well as being led by a patrician class of scholars, there was this tremendous capacity for meritocracy. If you recall from last week, the two great students of Yochanan ben Zakkai who established Yavna, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkanus and Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania, were really the very, very big figures on the scene of Yavna during this period. And so, of course, was the person who's going to go and become the spiritual giant of the whole of this first 30 years, who is, of course, Rabbi Akiva. I'm going to speak about Rabbi Akiva shortly, but not yet. So we need, but we need to understand that Yavna at this point is really cooking. We have Rabban Gamliel, but it's, but it's fraught with tension. I'm hovercrafting over some of the very, very big tensions that were happening in the development of this Yavna project. Rabban Gamliel at a certain point was deposed. He was deposed and both Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania and Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkonos, who was Rabban Gamliel's brother-in-law, both of them were excommunicated at various times. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania was rehabilitated. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkonos was not. And there are some very, very big stories around that that those of you are familiar with the literature and we can dive into it a little bit. Rabban Gamliel... Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua and of course Rabbi Akiva who is becoming greater and greater all the time now what I need to talk about now is hardly ever spoken about in the Jewish world this is and I'm, that's not an exaggeration it's a historical event that's very, very difficult for us and it's very difficult to find the sources on to get a real grip on it properly. I'm going to give it in summary, but on this occasion, what I'm summarizing is just about what we know. It's not the summary of a vast repository of knowledge. But if you read carefully and you dig a little bit there are things that we can understand about what happened here between 115 and 117 just so I have an idea of where to pitch this put up your hand if you know what I'm talking about very good I'm talking of course about the Kitos or the Kaitos Wars. It's called the Kitos Wars because it is named after the dude who basically ended it, who was Lucius Quietus. I know it sounds like a character from a carry-on film, but at the end of the day, Quietus was a brilliant but brutal general of Trajan's. But that would be the end. The beginning is more interesting and the beginning is more enlightening. This was a series of events over two years that went down in Jewish history. We know it 
under the name Mered Hagalyot, the rebellion of the diasporas. This was an enormous rebellion on behalf of the Jewish world against Rome. It did not take place, or certainly did not originate, in Judea. It originated actually in Cyrene, which is now Libya. It was a Jewish rebellion. Now, a lot of historians obviously are trying to climb over this and the very sparse details we know about it. Most of what we know about it, apart from a few snippets in Talmudic literature, most of what we know about it, and Midrashic literature, most of what we know about it comes from Roman historians. Cassius Dio and so on. And contemporary historians are trying to understand what triggered this rebellion because this rebellion did not seem to be driven by any particular ideology other than the fact that enough is enough. Obviously there must have been some local abuses happening but for whatever reason this rebellion started here and it spread and it spread to Egypt and it spread to a number of other communities it spread to Cyprus and it's the Jewish community of Cyprus was a was a long-standing and vibrant community it spread to Cyprus and it even spread over into the new conquests of Trajan into Rome and Mesopotamia there you could understand how there could be conflicts because Jews had just a week ago been fighting for the Parthians and now they have to be good Romans. It's not going to sit with them. You can understand why they might rebel against their new Roman overlords and why the Romans might react harshly. But that is happening at the end of the Kitos Wars. Kitos Wars start here. And it's really the communities of Libya, what is today Libya, Alexandria, which was this enormously vibrant community, and Cyprus, that is where, and to, some extent, and to some extent Judea, where most of this is happening. But it's not looking like it was something we want to be particularly proud of. We, now, first of all we've got to bear in mind that we are reading for the most part Roman historians who are not necessarily our best mates but nevertheless it looks like we caused a lot of damage and we took a lot of civilian lives we were the guys who were running this particular rebellion were to the Romans something like what Isis is to us we were a fundamentalist tribe of a particular world religion, Judaism, but we had this nutty group that was affecting communities and they were going out slaughtering civilians, slaughtering towns, slaughtering communities and fighting against the Romans. What they wanted, we know one or two, one or two of the figures involved in this, but they have not come down to us as illustrious figures. What we do know, however, for sure, is that Trajan put down these rebellions totally and brutally. Make no mistake, whatever were the causes of it, whatever were the causes of it, and we will come back to it when we look 
20 years later at the Bar Kokhba rebellions. But when we come back to this, when we look at it, whatever the causes, this was the biggest Jewish or genocide of Jews until the Holocaust. Millions of Jews died. And it, whereas in other horrendous persecutions, civilian deaths and numbers were a tragic product of some kind of political conquest, in this particular case, the Roman policy to quell these rebellions fell nothing short of wiping all Jewish presence out of these communities. I need to explain to you what this means. This was the end of any Jewish presence in these places. The Jewish community of Alexandria was decimated. That would have been unthinkable just a century before. In fact, it was probably unthinkable even 10 years before. Now, some historians have said, and they've pointed to a particular, a particular moment that some claim, in around about 110, that Trajan had at some point, maybe in a tweet, promised that he would move the embassy to Jerusalem and that he would allow the Jews to rebuild the temple. I said, any parallel with our generation is coincidental. And when that did not come about, because Trajan uh, changed his mind, and always remember, always remember, if I was to wake up in the morning and say to my family over breakfast, I think I'll let the Jews rebuild the temple, my family would say to me, just keep taking your medication. But if the Roman emperor says it, then that's like law coming out of his mouth. And if at four o'clock in the afternoon I turned around and I said, you know what, maybe that's not such a great idea. I don't think I'll let them build the temple. My family would say, that's great, Dad. Just keep taking your medication. But when Trajan did it, and later on we'll see Hadrian does the same thing, this had a devastating effect on communities. We don't know if that was the cause of the Kitos Wars rebellion, the Merid Hagaluyot. But it was a very clear case where huh, the famous statement of Hazal that the Jewish people had undertaken an oath not to rebel against the nations. Remember, remember, we are not allowed to rebel against the nations. We are not allowed to rebel against the nations. That's a very different thing from having aspirations for our homeland and wanting to build our own Jewish state in our own homeland. But while we live amongst the nations, however difficult it gets, unless, unless, you know, obviously I'm not talking about the Second World War. That, as I said, it's, that's outside the history of what we're talking about. But the Jewish people have had to put up with a lot of crap and they don't rebel because we're not allowed to rebel. That's part of being in the diaspora. Alternatively, 
It may have been some great wave of nationalism that wants to go back at the end of the day. Why? Why are we not trying to... Is God not on our side? Surely God, God doesn't want us to be living amongst the Romans and the Egyptians and the Babylonians. He wants us to be in our own land. The community of Cyprus was nothing short of a complete and absolute genocide. In fact, the Romans banned Jewish presence from Cyprus completely. Any Jew found in Cyprus after Trajan for hundreds of years was to be put to death. Even if they arrived in Cyprus by accident. Because the boat they were on got blown off course and ended up in Cyprus. If you were a Jew in Cyprus and that happened to you, they would kill you. No Jews were allowed in Cyprus on pain of death for any reason whatsoever. These were some of the outcomes. Now you might think, well, that's just the beginning for Trajan. That was his turning point. That's when he became, you know, started his wars against the Jews. But Trajan never really had a chance to do that because right after that, Trajan died. Trajan died. In 117, right at the end. In fact, Trajan died on his way back from his wars with his Parthians. And Hadrian comes in. And Hadrian is a very, very different person from Trajan. And Hadrian is a very, very complex person. And the first thing Hadrian did, he said, we're going to have a completely different policy for the Roman Empire. We're not interested in conquests anymore. We are interested in consolidation. I want a calm empire. I want a big empire. But it doesn't have to be as big as Trajan's. I would rather have a slightly smaller empire, but one that I know is living under Pax Romana and is not causing me headaches. So the first thing Hadrian did was he ceded back to the Parthians the provinces that Trajan had, hand, had taken. Simply gave them back. Says, I don't need them. They're too much trouble. And consolidated. What is the most famous archaeological monument of Hadrian in the world? His wall. His wall is a classic example of Hadrian. His wall sits separating England from Scotland because that wall says... This is as far as the Roman Empire comes. And on the other side, it's not the Roman Empire. It's barbarism. And they can do what they do. But here, the minute you step over here, you're in the Roman Empire and you're subject to Roman law. So Hadrian was a consolidator. By the way, just before I launch into Hadrian and his era, because that's going to take up most of the rest of my time this evening, is talking about Hadrian. I just want to go back to the Trajan era because I just want to look at Yavna for a bit. Obviously, Yavna was seriously under pressure during the Kitos Wars. Uh, the wars were not specifically centred, as I said, in Judea. The Romans were very, very much poured a lot of military presence into Judea to make sure that the Jews living in Judea did not think of rebelling again just because their compatriots in the diaspora were rebelling. But they were under very strict conditions. Uh, in fact, at a certain point, uh, Quietus had made a siege 
of one of the major towns where a lot of the rabbis were living, which was, of course, the town of Lod. And living in Lod at the time was Rabban Gamliel, who by this time was obviously very old, very senior. He's more or less towards the end of his life. Uh, and he made a very famous, um, a very famous decree saying that uh, the people inside Lod were allowed to fast because fasting was one of the things you do when you're having those sorts of difficulties, like a Roman siege. But they were allowed to fast even on the days of Hanukkah. It became an interesting suck because obviously people were even conflicted about that. That may also be the time during the Kitos Wars where we see some interesting enactments come out of Yavna. Uh, one of which was interestingly enough, I'm sure some of you will know this. Why do we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah in Musaf? Why don't we blow it in the morning service of Shacharit? Why do we blow it in Musaf? because they did not want to uh, literally alarm the Romans who might have thought that the sound of the shofar was the sound of rebellion. If you do it a little later in the day when you've already been in synagogue for two or three hours, then, okay, that's the way the Jews pray. But if the Romans get woken up to the sound of that, it's not going to, the optics are not good, as they would say today. So enactments like this, we can see the pressure around And once again, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, by the way, <laughs> Rabbi Yeshua bin Hananyu is obviously growing in strength. He is now together with Eliezer bin Hurkanus, who then passes away, but then Eliezer bin Arach and, uh, uh, and Eliezer bin Azariah. These are the great figures of this period. Now, I'm going to talk for a minute about the giant of the period, who I mentioned before, who is, of course, Rabbi Akiva. And I'm not, I mean, we literally could speak now for several hours about Rabbi Akiva and it's a very, very difficult life and career to summarize. I've spoken about Rabbi Akiva in dedicated talks and interspersed in other topics and so on. He comes up in a great, vast variety of topics. What I'm focusing on in this particular series are two things. One is geopolitical relations that the Jewish world has with the wider world in this period, but also with a focus on the development of what we come to know as Rabbinic Judaism, the development of the project of Chazal. And that is what we were focusing on. And what's important to understand in that context is that Rabbi Akiva himself is not working in a vacuum. Rabbi Akiva, as you famously know, turns up at Yavna, well before this, we know, because he's already on the voyage to Nerva. So he's already a big sage during the 90s. So possibly, well, the dates are difficult to really pin down. But possibly 20 years earlier, maybe sometime not long after the destruction and the establishment of Yavna, Rabbi Akiva has turned up at Yavna and he has turned up because he wants to study Torah. And he is a complete ignoramus. His family have been ignoramuses for some time. 
He's an itinerant shepherd, can't even read, can't even read. In a society which has almost 100% literacy, this guy can't even read. And he turns up and he's not 15 and he's not 25 and he's not even 30, but he's 40. And he becomes the most celebrated mature age student in Jewish history. Because he has such an accelerated perception of what it is that he wants to achieve and what it is that to, to study and to understand and such a devotion to Torah that it takes him 20 years, but he becomes a massive sage. Rabbi Akiva, first of all, tries to learn with Eliezer ben Hirkonus, but Eliezer ben Hirkonus is not really available to him uh, at his price range. Uh, he tries to uh, study with Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, but Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania does not have the time to teach him because he's got some other priorities since Akiva is kind of this illiterate 40-year-old. What's he going to do with him? He ends up studying with two uh, very, very uh, reputable sages called Nahum Ishgamzu and Rabbi Tarfon. And through them he becomes the equal of all the other rabbis at Yavna until he is independently his own sage. During which time? Akiva is developing an entire mode and hermeneutic of understanding the relationship between Torah and its interpretation and its applied halacha. And it is very much in contrast to the other great figure that is also being you know, on the rise during this period, Rabbi Akiva's kind of, I don't want to say adversary, because they weren't adversaries in the traditional sense, but intellectual opponent, if you like, who was, of course, Rabbi Ishmael. His father was Ishmael Kottengold. We understand. We understand. The, you, you, you need to realize that the entire structure of the Asarah Haruge Malchut, the Ten Martyrs, is a it doesn't work no 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 it's a fictionalized composite it no it may well be no 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 it's not it may well be all of those rabbis were martyred but they could not have been martyred during the same generation yeah it is a bit trippy when you realize it but that's just the beginning of your journey into trippiness now rabbi akiva and rabbi ishmael have a very very different philosophical approach to Judaism. Obviously, they are both great spiritual sages at Yavna, so it's not like they're in different religions, but they have different ways of interpreting the Torah because they have different understanding of what the Torah is as a text. Rabbi Akiva famously regarded every single letter and word of the Torah as precise, exact, and necessary. If the Torah says, Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim et ha-aretz, and not Bereshit bara Elohim shamayim va-aretz, there's a reason for that. Every single letter, and every time a word is doubled, and every time it's expressed slightly differently from the last, there's a reason behind that. 
And therefore you were able to seek to anchor your interpretations in this massive common law that was being handed down orally. How could we underlie that with principles of interpretation by making sure that everything that we're saying in our dynamic interpretation of the Torah can be founded on some textual element? That's going to be, if you like, the hanger on which we are going to thread all of our interpretations. Rabbi Ishmael, on the other hand, believed that the Torah was written in the ordinary language of people. If it expressed something a certain way, it's because it expressed it that way. What we're looking at here is the message behind it. How do we interpret? We interpret through logic. And Rabbi Ishmael took the seven rules of interpretation that had been developed by Hillel and he expanded them to the famous 13. They are logical principles, some of which are very, very well known to you. If it says it in this place, then it most definitely says it in this place. It applies to here. If it says it in that context, I can extract that and apply it to there. If there's a major topic discussed, then the next time it's discussed, I can make derivative arguments about the relationship between the general and the particular. These kinds of interpretive, logical, systematic arrangements. And both of these views of Torah are going to eventually contribute to what is going to become the project of the Mishnah. Rabbi Akiva is the first to really kind of systematize and condense all of these teachings into some kind of text, not yet written down, but some kind of formulaic body of work that can become definitive. I also, for a minute, during this period here, uh, just before I, I go into, you know, the events, um, I want to talk for a minute uh, about a very, very interesting aspect of Yavna and the project that was emerging, which is that, which unfortunately due to the following several hundred, if not thousands of years of absolute crap we've had to endure, could have actually been something that could have been nourished and grown into something very dynamic. That only now, only now we are maybe recapturing, apart from what I spoke last week, the fluidity of rabbinic Judaism in its Tanaitic phase, which is an energy that I think anybody would want to recapture. The ability to say the Torah is telling us how to live and to interpret the Torah according to the Kvod Ha'adam, the dignity of the human being, and to feel free enough to be able to make dynamic interpretations. Because most of the leaders of the Jewish people of this world were very, very big liberals. But another interesting aspect of it is the involvement in all aspects of Jewish spiritual life of women. I do not believe that there was any period in Jewish history until now that has not just stood up and said, oh, we have to include women, we have to respect women, 
and given some strange, empty apologia about how, no, women are much more spiritual than men, that's why we exclude them. <laughs> some of the women involved in the lives of the Tanaim were phenomenal. And once again, we don't have time to delve into this deeply, but I want to raise this as an interesting facet of this period. And it's not just the one you're all thinking about. Yes, obviously, Brewery is the one you're thinking about. But I'm saying, you know, Ima Shalom, who was the wife of Eliezer ben Hirkonos and the sister of Rabban Gamliel. Women like Rachel, the wife of Rabbi Akiva, who was the inspiration and motivation for his entire spiritual journey. And not to mention, of course, what well, we did mention, the great scholar Bruria, who is actually going to become more flourishing uh, in the second half of the century as the wife of Rabbi Meir. So this generation is, but maybe, maybe, maybe they're not as Zen as Hillel and Shammai, but they have a few other issues going on, but they are still interpreting the Torah dynamically. They are not afraid, they are not afraid to get up and interpret the Torah in a very, very liberal and enlightening way, in ways I think would shock most Orthodox rabbis today. There were rabbis who were saying to entire communities not to observe certain commandments in certain areas because it was hardship. They weren't afraid. They had the Torah, the famous Avonavachnai incident that we don't have to go into right now, when the rabbis basically excommunicated Eliezer ben Hirkonos because they said, we don't care what God says, it's what we say. These rabbis were fearless in their spiritual quest to bring spirituality to people's lives. Now, we looked at the whole concept of merit, the whole concept of rebellion, and how that ended tragically, awfully, and with horrible repercussions for the Jewish world, because after that time, Trajan died at the end of the Kitos Wars, but we got Hadrian, and Hadrian's a consolidator. And what's interesting is that for the first, I would say, I'd think, I don't think I'm too out of field historically to say that for the first decade, more or less, things were holding in a holding pattern with Hadrian, he wasn't, he, he wasn't necessarily the enemy of the Jews for the first decade. But at some point in the late 20s of the second century, at some point in the late 120s, there was a shift. There was a shift. Now that shift didn't happen overnight. Um, some, some people want you to believe that Hadrian did what I said earlier and got up at breakfast and said the Jews can rebuild their temple and by lunchtime he was saying no. It wasn't quite like that. It was a gradual erosion of our relationship with Hadrian. We became a little confident with it and we had certain expectations about that. Hadrian in around about 130 made a visit to Judea. And it was during his sojourn in the east, because during the east of, uh, during the whole of that year, 30, 
131. Hadrian is wandering around here in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. And obviously everybody is going to try and schmooze with him and try and persuade him of different agendas and ideas. And it would appear at a certain point that certain interested parties, and some historians blame the finger at Christians, and some put the finger at Samaritans, and some put the fingers here and some put the fingers there. But at some point, Hadrian said, I know I said that I would allow the Jews to re-establish Jerusalem properly, but we're not going to do that. Now, this is where historians are a little divided on just what the extent of his initial promises were. What we do know is that within a short period after that, 18 to 24 months after that, Hadrian is already going around with his idea that what he's actually going to do is he's going to change the name of Jerusalem from Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina, after himself and the Roman god Jupiter, and that he's going to put a temple to Jupiter on the Temple Mount. That was not a consequence of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. That was actually one of the things that really triggered it. But prior to that even, at the beginning of Hadrian's kind of turn against the Jewish people, when he said, no, 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 we're not going to build this temple, people were getting very, very restless and they, it could have actually exploded the way it had exploded in the Kitos Wars uh, from the very initial phase, which would have been very disorganized. But the mobs were quelled by none other than the still alive Rabbi Yehoshua bin Hananiah, who went out and said to the crowd, and here it's amazing because the whole thing is recorded in Midrash Rabbah, in Midrash, and yet we know that the exact thing he told them, word for word, is actually also a well-known fable of Aesop. And that, of course, is the fable of the crane and the lion. When the lion gets a bone stuck in its throat, and the crane offers to take it out by sticking his beak right down the throat of the lion, grabbing the bone and taking it out. And he does that. And the lion says, thank you. And the crane says, oh, where's my reward? And the lion says, the fact that you stuck your head in a lion's mouth and you're still walking around alive is reward enough for you. You can go and tell everybody about that. And that's what Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah said to the populace. Let's not push it. Rome's not killing us, so he's not going to build the temple. We're not as good of friends of his as we thought we were. But let's just consider ourselves lucky that we had an encounter with Rome at the highest level. And uh, we got away with it without too much trouble. Hadrian's attitude towards the Jews devolved from there because we did start getting restless and we did not, were not satisfied with just being a nice, obedient Roman province 
and just being thankful that we could just get on with our daily lives. And we started being a shtickle archiparchy over there. And that then set in chain of motion a series of very, very bad relational steps with Hadrian that I won't need to go into all the details because you're familiar with them, but basically it starts with a total ban throughout the Roman Empire on circumcision, then Hadrian has a few other bans and they lead to the point where he is obviously banning public education of Jews, any Jewish education, banning any open discussion of Judaism. Judaism was banned. That was the full schmud. That was, it's now illegal to be Jewish. And under those conditions, you don't really have a choice. You have to rebel. I mean, what are you going to do? And, the, and, and obviously, you know, Tyrrhenius Rufus and various very, very severe governors that were brought in by Hadrian to ensure the control of the population. Hadrian was going to build his temple to Jupiter. He built it. Judaism was now banned. If the Jews didn't like it, then they didn't like it. But that's what was happening. Rabbi Akiva, of course, was by now backing Bar Kokhba's organized rebellion. And Bar Kokhba's organized rebellion meant that this wasn't some sort of happenstance, crazy kind of protest. This was a serious rebellion with an army, with tactics, with everything. And I've got to tell you, they, they had some very, very impressive early results. Hadrian, of course, had gone back to Rome by this stage. This is 132. But there were entire legions that were wiped out by Bar Kokhba. And dude was serious. And also he had forced conscription amongst the Jews that were living in Judea. You had to be part of the project. So much so that Bar Kokhba, of course, was able to establish an independent state of Judea with himself as Nasi. Minting coins, giving people passports, all sorts of things. And Hadrian, of course reacted as Hadrian. By the way, just so you know, just so you understand the personality of Hadrian. Anyone know anything about the personality of Hadrian? What he was like? Some of his habits? He lived in Rome, or just outside Rome, on an island. You could only get to the... It was just at night. Every night he went across this bridge thing and lived on an island surrounded by water, just him and his dogs. He was almost impossible to assassinate. He was a bit paranoid, like all Roman emperors, and with good reason. Hadrian didn't like the Jews. He thought circumcision was an ultimate barbarism. He thought their idea of one God was ridiculous. He thought they were insubordinate. Obviously also thought they were lazy, because they rested every week. Didn't like Judaism. But Kochba set up his republic and Hadrian just went nuts. He brought, of course, uh, Severus, the governor of Britain, he brought together with 
12 legions drawn from all over the Roman Empire. 12 legions, ladies and gentlemen. Vespasian, who destroyed Jerusalem and the Beit HaMikdash, had six. 12 legions come and they just wipe out all of the buildings and infrastructure and anyone they can find that's not hiding in a hole. And by this time, obviously, Bar Kokhba's state is under pressure. And as you famously know how it all ends, it all ends in... Where? Beitar. And after Beitar, where conservative estimates are that half a million Jewish soldiers died just in that one event, the siege and wipeout of Beitar, including Bar Kokhba. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is when Hadrian says, this place will no longer be called Judea. In fact, all of these provinces of Galilee and Samaria, oh, it's over here, sorry, Galilee and Samaria and Judea and Idumea, all of that area is now going to be a sub-province of Syria. It's going to become like a Syria minor. And we are going to call this area Palestina. There's going to be none of that historical record of anything that went before. This is going to be Palestina and it's going to be administered from Syria. Hadrian was total in his obliteration of Jewish presence. Jews were banned from Jerusalem under pain of death. And even if you were living in Judea, you weren't really allowed to be Jewish. As it happens... As it happens, Hadrian's going to die in three years' time. But that period was amongst the harshest persecutions that the Jewish people have ever gone through. All of the intellectual class of the sages that could be found, those that didn't either escape over to the Parthian Empire or have themselves very, very convincingly hid during that period, were rounded up and killed. Rabbi Akiva, as the leading sage, was kept in a prison for three years and eventually was took out and the skin was flayed from his flesh at the age, I mean, the rabbis tell us the age of 120, but he was certainly at least in his mid-90s. The martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva and that entire generation obviously is still in many ways with us as a huge watershed moment in Jewish history. However, on the day, on the day they killed Rabbi Akiva, was born, was born the truly great figure that's going to emerge from the post-Hadrianic. Literally on the day? Literally on the day. On the day that Rabbi Akiva was killed, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was born. Now, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's father, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, the second, 
because we'd had a Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel in the first century, if you remember. And Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, after uh, managed to escape, he was still a young man, escaped from Beitar. And a few years after Hadrian dies, a new emperor comes to the throne. Antoninus Pius. And Antoninus Pius doesn't really have the same issues Hadrian has. He's not going to dissemble all this in a hurry, but he really doesn't have a problem with Jews per se. Hadrian had a problem with Jews and Judaism. So over the course of the next few years, things become a little easier. Some of these rabbis that have been in hiding, they come out of their underground hidings and slowly they are able to reconstruct something like what the project of Yavna was before. Remember, and I, I'm going to say this, and I want you to understand this in a mental framework issue. For these generations here, the Hadrianic events and the rebellion of Bar Kokhba and the wiping out of sustainable life in the land of Israel was very similar. It was their Shoah. That was their Shoah. There's a different psychology going on. Remember that this was the last, this was the end of Jewish autonomy in the land of Israel, uh, except for some, a couple of bizarre windows here and there of two years at a time. But this was the end until 1948. That's nearly 2,000 years, or certainly over 1,800 years. So there was a big, big event. And slowly the facilities of Yavna and the teachings could emerge in the next generation. So Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel was appointed as the new Nasi and there was a structure where he would be the Nasi, that is literally a position that is going to evolve into the head of the exile, the royal representation of the Jewish people. Because he was descended from, king, from Hillel, he was descended from King David, he was descended from a great line of sages. That was the Nasiut, that was going to be passed in a hereditary way. The meritocracy was retained through a position called the Avbet Din. That was going to be the head of the scholars, the, literally the chief justice of the high court of the Sanhedrin, who was obviously representing the arm of learning and of justice. During this period here, with the reconstruction of the Sanhedrin, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel was faced with a bit of a dilemma. Because a big part of the reconstruction of the rabbinic project was carried on by the students, the student generation of Rabbi Akiva, his students, of whom of obviously famously there were famous, five famous students. And they went on to become the leaders of the generation. We can't go through them all, but the two big ones that you would know about would be Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Now, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is a very, very complex figure, and we're not going to go into him in detail tonight, except to say that he was in hiding for a long time because he was extremely politically outspoken in his view of the Romans. He probably had to hide longer than anyone else. Some of the other rabbis were more moderate. Rabbi Meir was probably the main receptor of this tradition of 
attempting to, in the school of Rabbi Akiva, of attempting to systematize the Mishnah into a body of knowledge. But then a new figure arrives from Babylonia, from the East. By now, the Babylonian community, which we are going to discuss more in detail next week, are on the rise. And they are producing huge scholars. And the first really big scholar to come during this period from Babylonia to take part in this renaissance and reflourishing of the project after the Hadrianic persecutions is, of course, that is Rabbi Natana Bavli. So Rabbi Natana Bavli comes to be the Av Bet Din. And because, and therefore, they created a new position, a new position for Rabbi Meir called that of Chacham. We now had a three-way dynamic, and that has its own politics as we move forward between the Nasi, the Avbetin, and the Chacham. Due to those tensions is why eventually in the Mishnah, Rabbi Natan and Rabbi Meir's opinions are often not mentioned in their name because they had actually challenged the Nasi uh, for the way that which honours were distributed. It's a very famous thing. That's why when you see Yesh Omrim or Acherim Omrim, it's usually either Rabbi Meir or Rabbi Natana Bavli from that period. This period here, the post-Hadrianic period, under Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel and subsequently under his son, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, That is the real dynamic. These guys had laid the groundwork and many, many, many of their opinions are quoted in the Mishnah. But the people who are actually putting the Mishnahic text that we have today together were these generations here under the guidance of Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Now, I know I only have a couple of minutes left. By the way, there's something I've just remembered. I wanted to talk about Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya back in the excommunication days, back here, was excommunicated because he, why? Because he challenged Rabban Gamliel on, the, on which day was going to be Yom Kippur. Remember how I said last week that he was actually this super astronomer? Well, he worked out what was supposed to be Yom Kippur and it was a different day and Rabban Gamliel demanded that he appear before him on the day that he said was Yom Kippur with his purse and his staff in his hand to prove that it wasn't. It was a very humiliating experience for Rabbi Yehoshua and caused the whole of the rest of the Sanhedrin basically to depose Rabbi Gamliel. But that is way back there. That's not what I was referring to. I was referring, in fact, to the visit of Hadrian and that Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania was still around and was not only quelling the public, but actually... The Talmud records quite a number of conversations between Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania and someone they refer to as the emperor. This could only be either, either Nerva back here when Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania was in Rome or, and more likely, Hadrian on Hadrian's visit to Judea in 130. According to some historians, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania even followed Hadrian like they were chatting all the way to Alexandria on one of Hadrian's visits to Alexandria, he took this ancient rabbi with him and they had lots of conversations. Very, very witty conversations. Rabbi Yishor ben Hanania shows a tremendous adeptness at a huge range of topics. And of course, he's always 
coming up with a much better answer than the emperor has, but the emperor can't kill him because he's too entertaining and so on. In a similar vein, in a similar vein, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, and especially his son, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who more and more as we move towards this the end of this century, were taking on more and more trappings of a genuine royalty. The word Nasi was no longer simply like an honorific title. It was now a real thing that was being passed down. They, he was the Nasi. Because that was reflecting what was happening in the wider Roman Empire. Because after Hadrian is Antoninus Pius. After Antoninus Pius, after Antoninus Pius, Marcus Aurelius. Of course, yes. <laughs> and after Marcus Aurelius is Commodus. Interesting, interestingly enough, it's not like the film Gladiator. It's not like Gladiator. Gladiator is like Commodus is like this awful person, right, and etc. But Commodus was actually quite a good emperor, certainly from our perspective. And then there was a few, a few archipakis that lasted a couple of months at the time, but the real ones were, were, were Commodus and Severus and Caracalla. Now, somewhere in all that conglomathon of emperors, is a relationship developed between the Nasi and more than likely Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi and whoever was the emperor in Rome. Sometimes the Gemara uses, the, or the Midrash, tells us about conversations in correspondence and in person between the Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, and Antoninus. But this is unlikely to be Antoninus Pius, more likely Caracalla, who's one of whose names was Antoninus. But we don't know. Once again, a lot, of, a lot of scholars want to say, oh no, it's Marcus Aurelius, because Marcus Aurelius was the philosopher. So who else is going to be having conversations with the rabbis than Marcus Aurelius? But everything else we know about Marcus Aurelius wouldn't necessarily suggest that this stoic soldier, philosopher, king, dude, was necessarily going to be you know, chasing rabbis around, asking them for the recipes for Jolland. It's not necessarily likely. But in some point in this few decades, there is a definitively good relationship established between the royal Judaic household and the Jewish world, and, and, and the, the Roman royalty and the Jewish royalty, although it didn't necessarily spill out totally into rights for Jews Elsewhere, although by the time we get to just after here, around about 210, Caracalla actually does that transformative thing where he gives everybody in the Roman Empire citizenship, including Jews. But we are having a lot of challenges at this point because Christianity is on the rise and has its own agenda. And by now, the Christian church is definitively a different thing from Judaism. The picture has changed from a hundred years earlier. But the end point is, the point I wanted to end on, is really here or here. It's either 189 or 219. There's a 30-year difference of opinion amongst historians based on what is possibly an error or not an error in a letter of Rav Sharira Gaon 
in terms of Jewish history, exactly how we can measure this up. People are not exactly giving dates over here. By the way, you do realize that when we say the year 5778, yeah? You do realize that, that in the Bible they're not using that, they're not saying that, and they're not saying it in the Talmud either. That doesn't really get used until well into the Middle Ages, around the 11th century. Certainly by the time of the Rambam he's using it, but those ideas, although they are based, they are based on calculations that were done during this period. Because people like Rabbi Yosef Bar Khalafta, who is living in this period, in the post-Hadrianic Reconstruction, are writing the histories of the world. And so they tell you that the world was created in what is equivalent to us as 3760 BCE. Which means that we are now, if we follow the Gregorian calendar, in 5778 equals 2018. You follow? So it's another kind of contribution that's happening. But the big contribution, and I keep distracting myself, but I have to finish now because it's half past nine. Depending on which thing you do, but certainly at some point towards the end of the second century or just after, is the publication in a written down form, the release, the editing, the, the revelation, if you like, or the dissemination is probably the better word, of this incredible document called the Mishnah, which is not simply created in a vacuum, but is the fruit and synthesis of all of these generations. The core of it was created by Rabbi Akiva as a textual body of work. It was inherited by Rabbi Meir and worked upon by him and Rabbi Natan Habavli and the other sages during the time of Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And under Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's editorship, in a crisp contemporary Hebrew that we now call neoclassical and is a really, really, really formative basis of what we now know as Hebrew, emerged the Mishnah in six orders that covered every aspect of life. And the Mishnah is basically the entire oral Torah written down in succinct form, in thousands of tiny passages. That's huge, because what we're going to see next week are the rabbis that took the Mishnah and went with it to Babylonia, the new thriving center of the Jewish world, to set it up as the central curriculum of the Jewish world. We were now going to study things by topic. This was like a new educational technology that they were bringing to Babylon, or to Babylonia, in deep into what is going to become the Sassanid Empire because the Parthian Empire is about to collapse. And the relationships that we're going to be looking at between Jewish communities and global and empiric authority is going to be happening for the most part for the next two, three hundred years in this part of the world. But it is incredibly fascinating. Next class, I have to take us from 200 up to 500, which will be easier than doing a cent just a century. It's easier to do 300 years. And we can look at the thematics then. And thank you for joining me. Once again, I'll be feeling pain about all the things I didn't talk about tonight. And there are things I should have talked about. But the overview, the thematic overview that I want us to understand is how during all of these unbelievable persecutions and demoralizations, we were able to indefatigably emerge here with one of the great contributions ever made to world spiritual and legal culture.
the Mishnah is phenomenal when you think what all other societies in the world at the time are producing and doing. We produce a common law that is still read, still studied and still applied in order to bring dignity to people's lives and in order to enable them to have a productive relationship with the Torah and with their nation and with the world. These rabbis really emerge as the rabbis that created, in a sense, the spiritual world we live in, including Corfield Shul. Thank you for that. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.